Welcome to the Farcast, coming to you every week with insiders and experts to give you insight into the changing economic world. And now, here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to the Farcast. I'm Michael Farr. Thanks so much for joining us again this week. Here we are on June the 17th. June the 17th. 2020 is almost half over. Uh, been kind of a boring and uh, not much happening, not much going on kind of year. <laughs> yeah, right. All right. Over the past week, we had Jay Powell uh, come out last week uh, and the Fed said they're going to keep rates at zero percent for the next two and a half years through the end of 2022. Ladies and gentlemen, the Federal Reserve is going to be there and have your back. And then uh, Monday of this week, the Federal Reserve came out and said that they're going to buy corporate bonds. Very interesting there. That hasn't been done that way before. Direct purchases in the secondary market. A big deal there as government's doing everything it can to support markets, support the economy. Economic data are improving. We're going to check in with our uh, one of our favorite market people this morning, Kenny Polcari, is going to tell us what he thinks. We've heard Jim Urio and Jack Perugian both say they're buying precious metals, concerned about inflation at some point. We're going to ask Heather Long, a co- economics reporter from the Washington Post, but a Oxford University trained economist in her own right and a Rhodes Scholar, one of just a brilliant, brilliant person. Uh, and I love talking to Heather about what she thinks is going on. And she has a fabulous perch at the Washington Post to continue to interview some of the most leading economic minds in the world of voices. She talks to the leadership at the Federal Reserve and other central banks and in government. Can't wait to hear what Heather says. Dan Mahaffey going to explain what's going on between India and China. This big uh, summit, last minute called summit between uh, Secretary Pompeo and the leading Chinese diplomat Yang Jiechi uh, in Hawaii. Uh, all of that, as we start the forecast, remember that we believe that hard work, discipline, fundamental research is the right way to go about investing. Remember that emotion is the foe of the long-term investor. If you're feeling fearful or ebullient, stop. Make logical, data-based, data-driven decisions that are dispassionate and disciplined. You'll be better off if we can help you at Farm Miller. Give us a call. Send us a note. Let's go right now to my friend, Kenny Polcari. Uh, Stocks only go up anymore, which is great. And you don't need fundamentals. Who knew that you didn't need fundamentals anymore? No, 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 no. Because what what we see happen every, uh, every, you know, five or six days is suddenly all the fundamentals, you know, make sense because the markets get well ahead of themselves and the market corrects again because everyone realizes, well, prices are ahead of where the economy is saying. And so therefore, what's it really mean to the fundamentals of the company? And then you have this, you know, come to Jesus reaction where the market crashes 1,800 points. And, uh, and then it starts all over again because the Fed comes right back and said, oh, wait, we can't let this happen. So let's start buying stocks. All right, Kenny. So uh, keep, keep talking to us about this. Do, do, do fundamentals <laughs> matter for stocks or no? Well, listen, in the long run, fundamentals always matter to stocks because that's really what's going to drive value. But in the current environment that you're in, uh, it's difficult, and we see that the market gets away from that because every time you turn around, it's either the Fed or the, or the Bank of England or the Bank of Japan or some of the central bank, the ECB, that's throwing all kinds of stimulus and money and, uh, at the problem, uh, which I understand because they don't want the financial system to go off the edge, of the, uh, off the edge yet they're really just 
distorting uh, valuations of the markets. And then you'll see exactly what we see. There's not only continued volatility, but, you know, on the way up, it's kind of a stair step action. But when it when it gets ugly on the way down, it just falls out of bed because everyone realizes that valuations have gotten way out of line into what the macro data is telling us. And the macro data, while improving, is still very, very negative. Um, and look, we have not been through a pandemic like this before in modern history. And so, therefore, there's no playbook, right? Right, right. Back in, uh, there's no playbook. And so... Um, well, there's no E in the P-E ratio anymore. We don't know what the E is for earnings. Right. We, I mean, right. 80% of the companies in the S&P 500 have suspended guidance. I mean, you just have sort of price now, and then prices seem to keep going higher. Here's what I don't understand, Kenny. Among uh, There's a lot I don't understand. But one of the things I really don't understand is how the bullish market psychology has held on as long as it has. So uh, there are three stages to market psychology, right? You have the first stage, which is denial. Doesn't mean what, it doesn't matter whether you're going up or down. If the market's going down, everybody says, well, you got to buy the dips, you got to buy the dips. And then you have that capitulation stage where everybody goes, oh, crap, things are really going to be down. And then they would keep going down until you get real fear. And that's when you should really buy it. And the, on the opposite side, it starts going up and people say, eh, it's not going to stay up. This is a head fake. And then it keeps going up and people say, OK, well, now we can buy it. This feels good because it's up, right. you know, 20 percent. And then it gets to the nosebleed stage and people go, this is great. All you have to do is buy stocks. Through and, and good news is in a bull psychology, good news is embraced and all bad news is dismissed. And if right. you come out and say, you know, in, in one of these bull market periods and you say, you know, I'm still a little concerned about stuff. Oh, far, you don't get it. Oh, far, why are you always so negative? Oh, far, why won't you get on board? This is a bull market. You can hear Joe Kernan saying it to me. He has. Right. So right. why, how has this market held on to the bull market psychology as long as it has. Why? How can it? I mean, it, 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 it abides no breach at all. No, but I think, in the, I think, listen, uh, it, it, mostly people want to be optimistic, right? They want to think that there are better days ahead, that they want to continue to believe that um, everything is good. And, and then what happens is we have this pandemic, the world falls apart. Then you get, again, every central bank throwing money at it. Then you got governments uh, offering all kinds of stimulus plans, the latest one being offered now by Trump, some trillion dollar package, which probably is going to go anywhere. But just the idea that he's offering it, what it could mean and what it could mean for jobs is once again fueling that kind of underlying simmering hope that people want to be hopeful. But then, like you said, it gets to the point where, and it happened only last week, where the market kept going up, up, up every day in a row from May 15th. It went up, it went up, went up. And people were scratching their heads trying to understand and trying to explain away why the fundamentals were okay and why this was right. And then, boom, 1,800 points later, they're all thrown in the towel going, oh, my God, the end is near. It's the typical, like you described, it's that typical reaction, which is why. You have to talk to your advisor, stick to your plan, ride it through. Do not make an emotional decision. Do not overreact. Take advantage of the days that the that the, that stocks get really dislocated for reasons other than fundamentals. For reasons other than fundamentals, Kenny, let's look through the into the fall here uh, as as we see all of this 
stimulus still coming at us. We've had three and a quarter trillion dollars so far from the federal government. We've had over three trillion dollars from the Federal Reserve. There are promises of more coming. Right. In late October, the amount, the current amount, pace of Fed buying will not keep up with the issuance from the Treasury Department, the bond issuance from the Treasury Department. The 10-year right. last week got a D-plus rating from Rick Santelli. Uh, the auction didn't go all that great. At what point do you think markets balk and say, wait a minute, you're selling bonds here on one branch of government, you're buying the same bonds back on the other branch of government, you're now printing more, selling more bonds where the supply is actually outpacing the government's demand, whatever that means. Right, uh, right. When when do rates when do when do markets balk or do, how long can this go on? Well, I, and I I think you're starting to hear more about it. I can't go on forever, that's for sure. And what you're starting to really hear now, that's really starting to simmer under the surface that people are actually starting to ask that question because in just as you point out, you can see it coming. It is going to come. It's going to get to the point where they can't keep up anymore, and so then there's going to be a real reaction in the markets in terms of where are we what have we done how could this how could stocks be where they are when all this is happening under the surface which is the part that's a little bit nerve-wracking which you can't i can't sit here and believe that that conversation does not happen in the fomc committee i can't believe it doesn't happen right i know so therefore and so and so therefore um again there's no there's no playbook here, right? And so everyone's flying by the seat of their pants, or at least that's what it feels like, because they keep adding programs and adding programs and adding programs, and no one's talking about, uh, guys, we're getting to the end of the rope here, because that is going to happen. And I'm fearful the day, because the elephant down that day will be a really ugly ride down. Do, is and 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 is is the picture then? I mean, the beginning of that elevator ride down. Does that really start with any significant inflation? Jay Powell says he's going to keep rates at zero through the end of 2022. I couldn't right. believe that the Fed chairman came out and said, for the next two and a half years, you've got zero rates. Right. I mean, that's a, that's a that's a nuclear option. And then they and now they're buying corporate bonds. I don't go. I don't know. I mean, they must be seeing something really, really bad at the Fed, well, don't you think? Well, and see that that's exactly what I think. Yesterday's or two the, the announcement two days ago about now buying corporate bonds in the secondary market, even though they talked about that was one of the tools in the toolbox back in March. They did they did say it, so it wasn't completely new. But the fact that they that launched part two of that corporate bond program has to suggest to somebody that they see something or they expect something or they're just they're just so overly concerned uh, that it's that it's uglier than it appears should start to send shivers through the market, which is, again, why I think the reaction on yesterday when the market rallied or on uh, uh, you know, Monday afternoon into yesterday when the market yeah. was rallying on the back of that new program is a little bit curious because it causes me. To scratch my head and go, hmm, they're adding another program only weeks after they added the first program, and now they're buying corporate bonds in the secondary market. It, it's got to be worse than everybody's letting on. So the reaction in the market should not necessarily be to surge higher. It should have been actually to turn and potentially uh, back off a little bit as it considers and digests everything he's saying, which is why today will be important once again, because at some point, someone's going to ask him a question, whether they understand the question or not, and he's going to give an answer that the market's going to listen to and then react to. 
Yep, yep. So we, so this is going to be a continue to be a big day of testimony for Jay Powell. This is yeah, this is and, an important day, right? And yep. for the markets, and for the markets, and, and for the markets. So as we look to the fall, Kenny, and you think about next year, uh, and and we have a recovering economy. You know, Jay Powell. I mean, uh, Jay Bryson from Wells Fargo has come out and said by the end of the year we're going to see unemployment at nine percent, down yep. to nine percent. Uh, that's an interesting comment to me in that it's still rising. Uh, I mean, you know, basically, technically, if you if you if that two and a, what did you make of that two and a half million blip there? I mean, that that, that was later explained in the footnote wasn't really an ad. <laughs> uh, well, clearly, clearly it caught everybody by surprise in the swing. The not that was a nine million job swing in the number right because they were expecting yeah. negative seven and a half and they got plus two and a half right so that's right and, and you, you got to scratch your head and you got to say okay listen if you miss it by a million or you miss it by two million that's one thing maybe you can you can discuss that but how do you how do you miss it by nine million and then and then try to say everything's good i agree with you because the jobs that were that that were supposedly created were, were furlough jobs, jobs that were that, that, that were coming back, right? Those people were called back. And so therefore right. there was no job creation at all. But it's the it's the perception of what that looks like. Oh look, we're calling these people back. Oh look, the economy's doing better. Oh look, we're reopening again. So they're trying to create that that you know the the idea, the impression that uh, that the economy is going to come back and come back strong. And while I do think the economy's going to come back and I do think people are frustrated, and I think people want to go out. I don't think it's going to be nearly as fast as uh, they're letting us on to believe. Because, look, you can already see what's happening. They're talking in those six or seven states, you know, quote, unquote, the resurgence. I'm not sure. Is it a resurgence or is it just the result of more testing is going to reveal more more cases? Because what you're not getting is we're not yeah. getting a resurgence in deaths. And I think that's the stat you really have to focus on. Is it a resurgence in deaths or just a resurgence in identification of infections that can be treated and people will recover, right? So well, and, and now there, 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 is a, uh, there is a therapy now, right, that, that seems to be pretty effective for people well, who are very sick with this, showing some better yeah, that, results that there. That, that was the steroid, yeah. Yeah. Let's let me let me ask you, this is, this is terrific talking to you. It's always terrific talking to you. Uh, so uh, as as we look at the uh, Polcari portfolio here coming coming into the year end and for the next year or so, when we talk to Jim Urio, Jim Urio tells us he's adding uh, three weeks ago, he's adding silver to his yeah. portfolio. We talked to Barugian. Barugian says he's adding to his gold position and he's adding to Bitcoin. I mean, yeah. only to like a 5% position in gold. Maybe he, he was taking it a bit higher. He had 2 or 3% in Bitcoin. Uh, what about you? Uh, uh, more cash, more anything? Are you what? What? How are you positioning the Kenny portfolio here? So, so uh, I have added uh, gold to the portfolio recently, but I'm yep. starting to chip away at it because you have to be concerned about you know inflation for sure. But I don't think I don't think the inflation thing is going to happen. I don't think it's going to happen in in the in the short term future. But I do think when it happens, it's going to get ugly. Um, I got to tell you. I'm also adding to financials into energy. I, I think energy is so um, uh, uh, is so underweighted at the moment because when it does when it does reopen, there's going to be a surge in demand. That's what they look at. They killed energy. 
And then they all started yep. talking about the surge in demand. They rallied it back. And now they're talking about, oh, no, there's going to be declining demand. They're trying to knock it down again. Not happening. I think energy is going gonna, is gonna to be a, certainly a core holding for me uh, and one that I'm taking advantage of and adding to along with financial. Why is oil $37 a barrel? We got to go. Why is oil $37 a barrel? Because they've cut production by so much, right, in, in, uh, in OPEC. And then the U.S. has cut production naturally just because of the price. And so, therefore, it is, it is going to start to balance out. Demand is going to pick up its, up its head. It has started to pick up its head. And so that supply yep. and demand equation is going to flip. Ladies and gentlemen, Kenny Polcari is founder CEO of Case Capital Advisors, senior market strategist for Slate Stone Wealth, strategic advisor at Campfire Capital, and a CNBC commentator. He was on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange uh, for over 30 years uh, since 1985, um, and you uh, see him all the time. Listen to Kenny. He's a great contributor, and we always learn so much when he's on the forecast. Kenny, you are the best. Thank you for being on with us. Thank you, Michael. It's always a pleasure. All right. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be back with Dan Mahaffey and more forecast in just a minute. Thank you for joining us on this week's forecast. We'd like to invite you to follow Michael on Twitter and LinkedIn. On his social media feed, you'll find links to all of Michael's media appearances, articles he's been quoted in in such newspapers as the Wall Street Journal and Washington Post, and of course, the Farcast. Additionally, Michael shares some of the articles we are reading at Far Miller in Washington every morning that we feel have bearing on the investing landscape. That's Michael underscore K underscore Far on Twitter and Michael Farr on LinkedIn. And now, Back to Michael and the Farcast. Welcome back to the Farcast. And now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Joining now, Dan Mahaffey, the great Dan Mahaffey, from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress and our senior political analyst here on the Farcast. As we look each week at what's happening on in Wall Street. Washington and the world, how it makes sense for investors and our listeners. Dan tries to join us and explain as a Washington insider, Capitol Hill's view and how it's all going to affect us. Welcome back, Dan. Good to be back with you, Michael. Thank you. Dan, week to week, you know, when we started this about three years ago, this uh, uh, podcast, uh, there were weeks where we said, well, what are we going to talk about this week? Boy, we haven't done that, and I can't remember how long. Uh, how are we going to get to everything this week, really, is, uh, is the topic. It's something. Yeah, and, and, and maybe we'll get to Brexit next week. <laughs> We're gonna get, we've got to cover Brexit at some point, really. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, and, and you know something, the ramifications from Brexit are certainly being felt and compounded with uh, coronavirus. It's a big deal. So uh, at some point, we actually should go back to breakfast. True. Breakfast. Breakfast. Yes, there we go. Let's call it breakfast today. It is a dog's uh, breakfast. <laughs> it is a dog's breakfast over in the UK and probably not going to improve anytime soon. Exactly. God bless them and keep them. All right. Lots going on, of course, right. uh, not only domestically uh, and on Capitol Hill. Um, let's let's start where uh, some of the uh, heat is on the heat map. There seem to be skirmishes uh, between India and China. Correct, yeah. uh, this is a big deal. Tell us about it. So we have a, we've had a growing amount of border tensions between India and China, and particularly growing because both countries are trying to improve 
the infrastructure along this disputed border in the Himalayas. And this border's never really been set. And what happened is a, it seems that an Indian patrol countered uh, the, the Chinese. Now, the rules they have between the countries is that no one carries weapons within two kilometers of the border to avoid a firefight. Uh, but they actually engaged in a brawl with sticks and stones and batons, uh, baseball bats wrapped in barbed wire. And it sounds like the Indian casualties, this is terrible, but the Indian casualties came when uh, a lot of them fell to their deaths or were forced off the side of a cliff uh, in the Himalayas. So understandably, wow. anger, anger is very high in India right now. Uh, the Chinese are certainly you know, showing their strength and nationalism on, on many fronts. But I think the, the, the problem here for both sides is India wants to uh, show strength, but they are still far weaker, more militarily than China. And while uh, China certainly has its own nationalist tensions, uh, they don't want to add to their uh, plate right now. But it's, it is useful to stoke that tension at home. So we'll have to see how this pans out. But I think both sides are going to want to de-escalate this. Although it, it might be an impetus for India to start to make some very needed reforms, both militarily and economically. It, I also saw, as we looked to Asia, that uh, Kim Jong-un has blown up the North Korea, South Korea sort of uh, diplomatic facility. He, he literally yeah. blew it up. Yeah, when I first saw that headline the other day, I thought, okay, this is metaphorically like, uh, you know, okay, he, he stormed out of the talks or they closed the hotline or something like that. No, the, they literally went ahead and uh, blew it up. They blew up the building that houses the liaison office, and they're talking about uh, a military reoccupation of certain border sites. Uh, but that said, this is, I think, a reflection, though, that the, the continued... Uh, intransigence and in behavior of the of the North Koreans right now reflects, I think, that they need some attention because of the impact of COVID. Now, we don't know if that's the actual disease outbreak in the country or just that its main trading partner, China, is weak, and that's really hurt its economy. But all of these come together to suggest that the North Koreans need uh, economic aid. They want to use that playbook again. As well as also, I think we see that the a lot of this is being driven by a desire to promote the role of his sister, uh, and that falls back on those questions we've had about his health and what uh, succession or co-rule might look like under their system. But it, I think it's raising the profile of his sister as well because she's making a lot of the very hawkish. Okay, but about th South this Korea. is is this is a this is a uh, this is how a uh, world leader has a temper tantrum. I'm not getting enough attention, so I'm going to go blow something up. I mean, is that that's really how, what we're that's saying? That's how a that's how a North Korean leader has a temper tantrum. Yeah, that's their that's their playbook. Ah, oh, that's 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 really calming. Um, all right. Well, we'll see if the missiles start flying again. If the missiles start flying again, what's the reaction from China and others in the region? Well, others in the region, I think the, the Chinese have plenty on their own plate. They're going to want to try and avoid more of the, the missiles flying, because, again, missiles flying means a more American military, and that's not in China's interest. Missiles flying means more uh, investments in the Japanese military, which is not in China's interest. So uh, China is going to try and control them. The question is, what economic levers do they have at this point? Uh, I just heard this morning that Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is headed to Hawaii for a rather hastily arranged meeting with the lead Chinese diplomat. Uh, I'm going to say this wrong, probably Yang Jie Chi. Yang Jie Chi. Yeah. Sure. 
Yeah. Right. In the, what you said. Uh, <laughs> what's why is that happening, Dan? I think both sides, as much as the rhetoric is heating up, still want to have a, a floor on how bad things could get or where the rhetoric goes. I think particularly the Chinese. Uh, the Chinese have talked about. Obviously, they want to. They see themselves as a rising power, but they also don't want the instability that would come if the uh, if the U.S. if U.S. power precipitously declined. They want to kind of manage that transition. Uh, compare that to Vladimir Putin, who's perfectly happy to blow everything up. Uh, but the 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 way it is with this, I think they're going to try and talk about some of the the trade rhetoric, the military confrontation. Uh, and and the Chinese ultimately want to make sure that the the transition from Chinese from American power to Chinese power uh, is calm and and well managed. So therefore, I think they they want to try and again arrest this uh, decline in the, in the tone between the sides. Uh, but that's going to be hard for this administration because of course uh, President Trump wants to make hard on China part of his uh, reelection strategy. Okay. And let's, uh, coming back domestically now, uh, John Bolton, uh, yes. national security advisor for many years for President Trump and the administration, has a book coming out, and the president's not happy about that, uh, trying to get the attorney general to block that publication. Uh, and actually, uh, the president's niece, Mary Trump, has a sort of family kiss and tell coming mm -hmm. out or not coming out that has the White House upset. Tell us about yeah. those books and, and how can can the how does the government stop the publication of, uh, of a book? So Bolton's book we'll look at first. Now, that uh, is one where it talks about his time as national security advisor. It's called In the Room Where It Happened. I think he's also going to be interviewed on one of the major networks this weekend. Uh, he's going to basically what we're being previewed and what was, you know, perhaps what he did or did not say. Uh, or could have said during the impeachment was that it, it's not just Ukraine, but a range of other transactions and dealings in the White House that are very transactional, very quid pro quo approach to foreign policy by Trump that was that was driven by what was good for Trump and not what Bolton thought was good for the country. So uh, huh. the question there is whether there's classified material. Can DOJ stop that? Now, it's been in the review process for a while already. We don't know about that. But what they are trying to do, at least, is a civil action right now, which would take all the proceeds from the book and put that in a trust. So, you know, I don't think Bolton would mind. You know, Bolton's well off, but basically the government's saying he's not going to see a cent from that book uh, if they go ahead with it right now. Uh, so is, is there, there, is there uh, a sense that there is some earth-shattering piece of information uh, or pieces of information in this book? Uh, that, that, that is going to be significantly damaging to the president or his upcoming campaign here? I think, it's campaign. I think it's damaging because it's someone like John Bolton, who is not a uh, George Conway or not a Nicole Wallace, you know, someone who's actually known to the Fox News viewership is going to be saying this. That said, I think everyone's opinions about Donald Trump are so firmly put in place that it's just going to either reinforce how you feel about him or be ignored. Okay, uh, so you think this gets uh, glossed over. What about Mary Trump's book? So Mary Trump's book is interesting, and Mary Trump, we find out, is the one who, his niece, who actually helped leak the family tax arrangements to the New York Times. I know it seems like ancient history a year ago yeah. when yeah. the New York Times looked at all the tax arrangements that the family had. 
but her book talks about his upbringing, the the nature of his relationship with his father, his uh, disdain for his uh, alcoholic brother, uh, all these things that come together that just paint a very unflattering picture about the the Trump family and kind of any concept of him being a, a family man. Uh, but that question comes down to whether you know the president. Some are saying that the president has uh, NDAs with his non disclosure agreements with his family members. Look, we've all had heated Thanksgivings, but th that's kind of crazy. And you you see that it just doesn't create this image of a of a stable family if that's the case. Yeah, an NDA, a family NDA. Uh, I wonder what you get. I mean, you, typically, whenever you're asked to sign something, you get something in return, don't you? I yeah. wonder what they got for signing that. Uh, and I wonder if that's true. I mean, yeah. that that, that well, actually could, that shapes up. could be fake news, couldn't it? Yeah. Could yeah. Okay. Uh, Dan, uh, we are trying to keep track of everything on Wall Street, uh, and we have a couple of more stimulus packages proposed. Let's Give us your uh, best take on when, what. I mean, there are as many as three more on the table uh, now yeah. from, from, from the government. What's happening? Well, look, we have these proposals. We've had that House bill sitting there that's yet to be moved on. We have other questions about the White House proposal for some kind of infrastructure spending. All of this comes down to what Mitch McConnell has the appetite for, and he doesn't seem to have the appetite for much more spending right now. He and the Senate Republican leadership uh, I think they see the numbers from the sales numbers, the employment numbers, the Wall Street numbers, and say, look, this first stimulus package uh, is there. Uh, so they also point to the fact that about half of the first stimulus package is yet to be spent. Uh, they highlight the, the unemployment contributions as being a deterrent to hiring because they claim that people are making more money. Uh, all those things come through and then lead to this, this slowdown, buddy, mentality when it comes to the Senate side. So I don't see the the action moving quickly. But then, you know, perhaps after the 4th of July, the idea that a lot of this stuff expires in that end of July, August period uh, might focus them a little more. You know, the CARES Act directed an extra $600 a week in jobless benefits to help out of work Americans sort of get through the business shutdowns. Uh, those benefits expire July 31. So, uh, you know, uh, while the economy and uh, retail sales uh, picked up, the income that's fueling a lot of these retail sales is still being provided by government. We'll see how all this plays out. Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress, thanks so much for being with us again this week. We, we can't wait to see what we're talking about next week. Maybe Brexit. Maybe Brexit. There we or go. Breakfast. Dan, Take or breakfast, maybe breakfast at uh, Brexit, Brexit, breakfast at Tiffany's breakfast. We'll see. Uh, and when we come back, we're going to talk to Heather Long from The Washington Post. Not only is she a fabulous journalist, she is a really accomplished and credentialed economist. Her insights from her perch at The Washington Post have been marvelous over the years here for our listeners at the Farcast. Can't wait to talk to Heather. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Thank you for joining us on this week's Farcast. Every week, we bring you experts and insiders to give a deeper understanding of our changing world. If you would be interested in Michael Farr delivering a presentation on the economic forecast for 2021 and beyond, please contact me 
Harry Jennings at 202-530-5608 or email me at hjennings at farmmiller.com. In the past, Michael has delivered presentations at such venues as the Palm Beach Chamber of Commerce, the YPO Economic Summit, and the University of Delaware Economic Forecast. We are booking now for late 2020 and early 2021 for events where Michael will share his views into the recovery from the pandemic, including the consequences of the stimulus and the opportunities for investors. Reserve your date now on Michael Farr's speaking schedule. And now, back to Michael and the Farcast. Thank you for joining us on the Farcast. And now, back to your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Farcast. Terrific Farcast this morning. Kenny Polcari uh, weighing in on markets and what he sees as inevitable inflation and a kind of a tipping point uh, coming at us. Dan Mahaffey explaining China uh, and this uh, Pompeo Yang Zhechi Chi meeting. I'm never going to pronounce that properly uh, in Hawaii. Uh, quickly arranged uh, over the uh, conflict between China and India and also what's going on in North Korea and the Chinese need to sort of establish a floor of expectations there, make sure that the ties with the United States remain in place should things get dicier. Now, as we look and cover Wall Street, Washington and the world with you on the forecast, we are returning uh, and are excited to have join us Heather Long from the Washington Post, a far cast fan favorite. And ladies and gentlemen, uh, I think you all know I talk to uh, reporters almost every day uh, from around the world. I talk to Japanese newspapers and London newspapers, uh, Indonesia, apparently. Harry, I'm big in Indonesia. You know that? Big in Indonesia. That was uh, I didn't know that until uh, about last month. And all of a sudden start getting Michael Farr popping up in Indonesia. The thing that you learn is there are some people that are just assigned to cover uh, economics and business who don't know anything about it. And the questions are tedious and you kind of do your best because it's a great privilege to have the bully pulpit that I have. And I really am grateful for it and humbled by it. But every so often I get to talk to a reporter and, and, and ask a couple of questions back. And when I started talking with Heather Long a couple of years ago, uh, I, I thought, wow, uh, this reporter gets it. And then when I checked into Heather's background, Wellesley College, uh, bachelor's degree in economics and English, then Oxford University, where she was a Rhodes Scholar, master's degree in financial economics and medieval literature. How cool is that? Her insights uh, are, have been just absolutely fabulous. One of the smartest people we get to talk to with a terrific perch at the Washington Post. Heather, welcome back to the Farcast. Hey, it's good to be here. I didn't know a cheerleader was on your resume, but I like it. <laughs> Let me tell you, it is not. Uh, but you, you, you have to, uh, you have to give uh, brilliance its due. Tell us, Heather. I mean, we we see you ask Jay Powell questions, and we read your stuff. Uh, I do with great interest, and I always learn. Tell us what you think is going on with endless uh, stimulus, fiscal and monetary. Uh, how good or bad is it right now? Uh, the biggest question on my mind is why the Fed is still buying so many bonds. I asked Powell about Thank it you. last week at the press conference and Senator Patrick Toomey from um, Republican of Pennsylvania asked Powell about it uh, this week in the Senate banking hearing. 
And I, you know, I think, you know, of course, in, in March and April, it was obvious. <laughs> the whole world was going to hack. They needed to step in. They needed to do dramatic action. And they said, look, we're doing this to stabilize the markets. And everybody understood what was going on and was very thankful for it. You know, but you're sitting here this week and, and last week, you asked Powell the same question. They, they put out in their statement that they are going to continue buying treasuries at the same pace that they've been buying them. And then they come out this week and they say they're basically going to buy even more corporate bonds. You know, this is the first time they're ever buying corporate bonds and that they're basically going to buy even more of a mix of corporate bonds than they were originally intending. And again, you're sitting here in June saying, where is the market? (laughs) Where are the problems in the market that you're trying to solve? And, you know, Powell had yesterday, this week, he told the senator to me, um, we we want to do this if things turn out bad for the economy. So it's like this is the ultimate insurance right. policy. Like hello, I don't I don't get it. It doesn't make well, sense. Okay, so Heather, when I heard him say last week in his testimony that the Fed was going to keep rates at zero through 2022, I thought, oh my goodness, the Federal Reserve Chairman just promised zero percent rates for the next two and a half years. What is he seeing? And then. Five days later, in between meetings, on a surprise announcement, he, he, you hear that they're going to do these corporate bond purchases, which they don't do and they haven't done before. And I mean, it's kind of a nuclear option, it seemed to me. And I was in a meeting um, with, with clients and I saw that come across my phone and uh, I looked up in the middle of the meeting and just said, holy crap. Uh, it was that shocking to me. Now, it's not the same as, you know, when you are in the middle of uh, surgery and you hear your surgeon go, oh, crap. But, you know, when your money manager does it, it's still these people looked up and said, what now? What now? <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, I think- the, funny, the funny part in that meeting was one of them said was the, the, the one person in the meeting looked up and said, what did he say now? <laughs> they thought the president had said something. <laughs> it wasn't. This time it was Jay Powell. What? Am I reading it wrong? I don't think so. Uh, I mean, I, I'm certainly much more on your side on this one. Um, so to like back up for a quick sec, um, they're doing two types of corporate bond buying. They have a primary corporate bond buying facility and a secondary corporate bond buying facility. So the primary one was supposed to go out and buy individual corporate bonds from companies. Um, And so these would be companies, presumably, that are in a little bit of trouble, (laughs) although they have to still have been investment grade by whatever the date was, March 22nd. So what they announced this week was in the secondary market, corporate market facility. And in the secondary facility, they were supposed to go out and buy ETFs, you know, so pre-established, pre-packaged groups of bonds, They've already started doing that in the past several weeks. You know, they put out their first list of the of the ETFs they were buying. You know, people like you and I look at the list and you sort of nod your head like, okay, yep, there's the BlackRock one. You know, there's a Morgan Stanley one, blah, blah, blah. But now what they changed and what made you go, oh, crap, on Monday was, you know, suddenly they're they're going to create their own. Yes. ETF. It's like going to the, you know, to the wine store and you can create, mix and match your own six bottles and still get a discount. But no, you know, but when it's, it's, when it's the Fed doing this, you know, normally that's a fun exercise, but when it's the Fed doing this, you're like, well, which bottles of wine are they buying? 
And why are they not just taking the one right off the shelf? The case of six that we all understand and know. Well, and let's talk. Let, let me explain it. Well, okay. So let me, here, here's what I'm, what, what I'm struggling to understand. What are they trying to accomplish? I mean, if the Fed is buying and they are buying a huge amount of U.S. treasuries right now, uh, and they're expanding their balance sheet and it's continuing to expand. Some people say uh, estimates are that the Fed's balance sheet will reach 10 trillion by the end of the year. Uh, one, I'd like to know if you think that that's an accurate number. But if they do that so that they create that demand and they continue to buy bonds, that keeps interest rates low. That seems to me to solve the Fed's general problem, doesn't it? In addition to keeping interest rates low and managing the yield curve, which, you know, through a period of crisis might make sense, but is it a really good long-term plan? I don't think so. Why do they need, in addition to that, to add purchases uh, and be concerned about the corporate bond market? Why wouldn't they let the corporate bond market price itself? Why won't they let free markets work here? What's the threat? Well, they seem to think that there are too many companies that are on the verge of going bankrupt and, you know, the carnivals of the world, the carnival cruise lines of the world, and that they can somehow um, prevent that by doing this bond buy. I mean, that's the only thing that I that I can figure out here, because, um, you know, it's frustrating that on the one hand, they're saying they're still claiming they're doing this for market stabilization. Uh, that argument really doesn't seem to hold water. Even the um, corporate bond spreads over treasuries have come come way down. So it's not like it's super hard to borrow money right now for, for most corporations. No. And then, you know, your point about, OK, the other obvious thing they would be doing is the yield curve targeting. But Powell, you know, last week played that down, said, no, we haven't made a decision on that. You know, no, we're not explicitly doing that. And a bunch of the Fed regional Fed presidents came out like Mary Daly on Monday and said, no, I really don't like yield curve targeting. That's not what we're doing. So they sort of backed the chairman up. So if that's not what they're doing, you know, the only thing left that I can tell is they appear to believe that there is some problem with a certain type of company. I don't know if it's oil company or if it's these retailers or maybe a mix of both. And they feel the need to go out and buy more of those bonds. But, you know, how do you going to have to disclose this? So, well, how do you square this with the Fed's mandate? Right. I mean, the Fed has a dual mandate, I guess, price stability and then maximum employment, uh, employment stability. Those that, that's the Fed's dual mandate. How do you square the purchasing of these? I mean, wh why wouldn't why wouldn't you let markets work beyond keeping interest rates at a reasonable and maybe if it's even unreasonably low range in order to uh, foster and provide a lot of liquidity? I, I, I guess I just don't get it. I'm, I'm looking for that explanation. I guess you've already given it to me. Um, uh, well, Powell justifies everything in terms of the um, job market. And, you know, you hear him stress in every statement he gives that this pandemic, this pandemic recession is hurting 
you know, low-income families, low-income workers, Black and Hispanic workers, female workers. He makes that point every time he speaks now. Yeah. And, you know, people have pushed him on the fact, like, well, you're basically propping up markets. Aren't you making inequality worse? And these types of arguments. And he always comes back, and he said it again last week, and he said it again yesterday, this week, that, you know, um, we're the best thing that we can do for workers is to you know, get the economy in the best place possible. And so his, you know, it's kind of a convoluted argument, but you can sort of see him trying to lay out that if we provide this liquidity to these companies that are sort of on the edge, they will, they will hopefully save more jobs this summer and this fall. Whether that happens is a big question mark. Tell us, Heather, now, as we look at what the government has been doing on both, you know, because Powell is certainly part of the government, they're expanding the balance sheet. The fiscal side of the House, the Treasury Department, Capitol Hill, they've added, we started out with this $3.2 trillion uh, spending bill support stimulus package. They're talking about at least three other proposed new packages now, everything from, you know, infrastructure to amending the current uh, you know, PPP kind of uh, support packages. How much is enough? I've always said that markets have always been vulnerable and subject to last straw moments, that everything's fine with markets until all of a sudden they aren't fine. And then everybody looks back and says, well, we all knew it. And can you believe it? And it was just horrible. And, and, and we go into the wailing and gnashing of teeth. Um, as, as markets want to do. That hasn't happened yet, the wailing and gnashing of teeth, really. How much debt can the United States take? I mean, if, if, if the GDP falls down to $20 trillion or something like that, where does GDP go, I guess is my first question. And how much debt? Because we're going to get to $30 trillion pretty fast, aren't we? Well, it sure, sure seems that way. Um, I, honestly, that's probably the best explanation for why the Fed continues to buy at the same level of treasuries. Is you know, the the level of treasury purchases is basically two trillion in the past three months, and that's basically how much treasury has been issuing. So you know, nobody likes to talk about monetizing the debt. It sounds a little bit too much like modern monetary theory (MMT) that so many economists and, and Fed central bankers hate hate to hear those words mentioned. But it sure looks like, whether there's an official agreement or an unofficial agreement, that the Fed has decided, at least for the time being, that they're just going to to buy pretty much all the debt that Treasury is issuing. Until about October, right? At the current pace of Fed buying, uh, come October, issuance will be actually outpacing, somewhere around the third week of October, outpacing the current rate of Fed buying. It doesn't mean that the Fed won't step up. But if the you know Treasury Department actually does issue uh, more bonds than the Fed is actually buying, we have a supply issue, and that may take rates higher, or the Fed starts... Uh, picking up and buying whatever they uh, actually issue. When do markets, Heather, look up and say, wait a minute, you've got the Treasury uh, raising money from the Federal Reserve and not a lot of other demand? Um, No, I'm not going to buy. And rates go higher. 
Uh, I think that is the key question, and we don't know the answer to it right now. Uh, at the moment, we're still benefiting from the fact that the United States looks relatively better than Europe and Japan and many other parts of the world. <laughs> so, but you're right. Uh, foreign purchases have slowed down. That's been happening for a while now. And so you, you do. You sit there and you say, okay, who's going to buy all this debt? Uh, certainly by 2021. And uh, that's an uncomfortable, uncomfortable question. That's all the time we have on this week's Farcast, but we kept the tape rolling, and you can listen to Michael and Heather's extended discussion on our bonus episode, Is There a Day of Reckoning? Heather and Michael explore the long-term ramifications of the Fed's largesse, when will inflation begin, and can the Fed create a rock so large that even the Fed can't lift it? Listen in for great insights on the economy and how it impacts the markets. Thanks for listening in this week. We hope you enjoy the show and we'll share with a friend. And a special get thanks to Michael's guests, Kenny Polcari, Dan Mahaffey, Heather Long, and Ripley, who chimed in with some of his thoughts on bond purchases in the background. He doesn't understand monetary policy, but he's one good doggo. The Farcast is produced by Michael Farr and Harry Jennings and is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and all major podcast platforms. We come to you each week. Please subscribe and don't miss a minute. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at Farcast at farmiller.com. Let us know any questions you have, topics you'd like us to cover as we produce the weekly shows. We would like to remind you that the Farcast podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal or financial advice. Any mention of a specific security should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell. And please be aware that past performance is not a guide to the future performance of any index, fund, manager, or strategy. And before you make any investment decision, we strongly recommend you consult with a financial professional to determine what may be best for your individual needs and your goals. And if we can be of assistance at Farm Miller in Washington, please reach out to me at hjennings at farmmiller.com. We are here to help, and I'll be happy to put you in touch with one of our investment pros for a review of your portfolio and your investment goals. We'll be back with you next week with more experts and insiders. Go beyond the headlines with the Farcast. Wall Street, Washington, and the world. <laughs>